I'm always trying to find those little flashes where it's just like kind of words fail. Mm -hmm. I just feel grounded in the cosmic perspective of the universe. listening to the Brightwall Darkroom podcast, a space where we belly up with critics, artists, and our magazine's contributors, and in today's case, editors and producer, to speak <laughs> from the heart about film. I'm Veronica Fitzpatrick. And I'm Chad Perman. Chad, how are you? I'm good, Veronica. How are you? I'm good. I'm stoked. This is a very special episode of the podcast today. It is. It's an exciting one. We're doing things a bit different. And it's our 10th. It is our 10th. Which is, in our world, a milestone. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I know. It's like other podcasts are like, we're 100 episodes in. We're like <laughs> rounding up number 10. Yeah, we take our time. That's kind of always been our thing. That's true. But I really enjoy doing it this way. And I think in our world, getting 10 out in 12 months is actually a thing. So Slow is fast. I believe that. Yeah. Yeah, so this is going to be kind of like a getting to know us episode since we are going to be talking to each other for most of it. Which I'm looking forward to a lot. It's going to be great. This issue's theme, what is it? Uh, well, the theme itself is moments, mm. intentionally kind of vaguely loosely defined in name, but there's a Jimmy Stewart clip, which we can maybe link to in the show notes, mm. where he just talks about how movies are, the real magic in movies is in moments that, mm. you know, mm. we're all, 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 he was talking as an actor, like all of us are working to create, not necessarily movies, but these really like magical moments. In this mm -hmm. case, he was talking about, I believe, uh, a scene from It's a Wonderful Life. And this was like Jimmy Stewart in his 80s, like mm. very grandpa Jimmy Stewart reflecting on his life, mm. which is wonderful. But the basic idea was, we all love movies, obviously. If you're listening to this podcast, you probably have more than a passing interest in them, hopefully, or else you're definitely listening to the wrong show. But I think that there is, for me specifically, I mean, kind of a moment's junkie that's actually what I think I'm looking for when I go to movies. I like lots and lots of things about them, but I'm always trying to find those little flashes where it's just like kind of words fail moments or things that feel like a nice warm blanket or things that just totally surprise you, like twists, mm. or just, you know, like I know we'll get to in, in one of yours, a, a beautiful little camera move that changes mm. a whole bunch of things. Mm -hmm. I just really think that there's a lot to be gained in while talking about, studying, and just kind of geeking out over, over some movie moments that we like. So that's kind of the theme of the issue-ish. <laughs> Mm -hmm. uh, and it's definitely the theme that we wanted to hit on most today where we just kind of get where we talk about some moments that really mean a lot to us for one reason or another. It's interesting because I feel like there's this intersection of criticism and scholarship that's really interested in the moment as a kind of like unit of movie appreciation where yeah. there's stuff like Christian Keithley, mm -hmm. Paul Williman writing about the cinephilic moment. Yes. And definitely. this like point of entry where the spectator's experience and perception really shape how they're encountering and appreciating and also remembering the film mm. text. Yeah, remembering is key. Yeah. yeah, or even misremembering. I love when I realize, when I catch myself misremembering something, like <laughs> magnifying it beyond what it was in the actual runtime. You're so much more generous with your flaws than I am. <laughs> like You gotta be, man. <laughs> I do that all the time too, but I'm like, what's wrong with me? Instead of like, oh, oh I no. love that I just misremembered that. What does that say about me or life? <laughs> and then the internet, you know, Tumblr, I feel like the screenshot, yeah leading to one perfect shot, all these kind of ways of distilling films into these like digestible, memorable kind of images. Yeah, I love that. It seems to be a place where criticism and scholarship are sort of united on that. I feel like there's a term for that type of criticism where you're focusing. Mm. Well, I feel like something that we've talked about before 
is just how much we long for film writing to really get into a kind of molecular analysis of yeah. what it looks and sounds like and not just have kind of sweeping summaries and big ideological readings, but actually be really attentive to what's going on in the film itself. Which actually but brings us back full circle because that's that's why you started working for us. I know. Uh, how many years ago was Veronica was a columnist yeah. when we had columnists? I think it was like 26. 17 maybe yeah and i'm not sure you must have proposed it um to me but uh, it was mm. a great idea like it was ma called magnificent obsessions yeah like that. <laughs> we only did five or six in a row but it was like mm. a monthly just highlight of every issue or these short little thousand words so there's sometimes 1200 words yeah we had the ear piercing scene in videodrome the elevator yeah. ride in indiscreet like all these yeah. little like oh that's great that you remember that maybe that's maybe that's where all this comes from uh, honestly yes and it was hard for me to come up with moments to talk about on this pod because i was like i've written about so many of them already <laughs> I mean for years I feel like I've been harping I even like did a search of my Twitter with the words scene and moment to see like how redundant I've been in the past like <laughs> like 15 years oh we all have done that it wasn't that bad actually I must have been doing some auditing and deleting over the course <laughs> of that time but deleting tweets is key nobody realizes that I know big tweet yeah. deleter over here <laughs> big deleting yeah tweet delete yeah but okay so I can kick us off yeah. we're just gonna go back and forth. That sounds great. So as you listen to us talk about our respective moments, you'll find links in this episode's description to each moment so you can watch them for yourself. We should say maybe. I, I don't know. If you're listening to this podcast, probably you don't give a shit about spoilers, but we're definitely <laughs> going to spoil some things. Oh, spoil from now on everything. Yeah. Get ready. Which one are we doing first for you? We are doing a moment from the end of Alfred Hitchcock's Notorious, 1946. Ooh, yeah. It's my favorite film of all time. I've been getting that. I was going to ask directly. There you go. Well, I first saw it at like when I was in high school, I went to this creative writing camp in Virginia. And one day our professor just showed us this film, which I now looking back, I'm like, like, what a lazy day that was. <laughs> like, that is a straight up wheeling the TV in on the on the rack. <laughs> so we sat in like a room in the library. It wasn't very many of us. And we watched this film. And then we talked about Hitchcock's sense of the MacGuffin and his plotting, like things that seem important but don't mean anything. And But beyond that, Notorious is this like fabulous, like spy espionage film set in Rio starring Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman, who then come back together for Indiscreet. Yeah. Great yeah. chemistry between the two of them. But it's also this romance between a questionably reformable party girl and this very like straight up and down, super stoic man who is like kind of her handler. Yeah. So it has like kind of a La Femme Nikita oh, point of yeah, no return uh, resonance to it. And I love those films too. Hitchcock ripped them off. Yeah, yeah right <laughs> through time. Harry yeah. Grant is like so mean and stiff and just laconic in the film, but also incredibly funny. And Bergman is like making jokes left and right, but kind of visibly falling apart. And there's something mm -hmm. so moving to me about their relationship. Anyway, so at the end of the film, she's been a plant in this guy Sebastian's house. They, she's been induced to date him and then like marry him. And she's like living in his house and he realizes she's a spy. Him and his mother realize that. And so she's poisoned incrementally and she hasn't been keeping up with her appointments with Cary Grant's character Devlin and so he goes to the house to see what's going on with her. Yeah. So he goes upstairs and finds her dying and so he kind of collects her and so the moment is this final speech that he gives. It's a, it's a dialogue but it feels like a speech yeah. and she's like what are you doing here? I thought you didn't care about me and he says I couldn't see straight or think straight. I was a fat-headed guy full of pain. That's a great line. And it just like knocks me out every time I 
hear it. And then he says, I couldn't see or think straight. And the camera, which is holding them in profile, slowly rotates around the back of Grant's head Mm -hmm. so that then they've reversed positions in the frame. And it's this totally weirdly motivated, but incredibly intimate camera movement. So if you think about what intimacy could look like on screen beyond just two faces that are close together, it really feels like it's contained in that movement. Yeah. You know, (laughs) I was a fat headed guy full of pain and (laughs) I've loved you all the time since the beginning is just like what everyone longs for the the sort of person they're interested in but who's being a bit withholding to say yeah exactly so it feels just like so crucial yeah 100 percent. yeah so that's my first moment and i teach the film all the time usually at the beginning of kind of an intro to film analysis type course i feel like if you see me in the screening room (laughs) it's like my jaws on the floor like i know the film inside and out and it just completely blows my hair back like every time I see it. Yeah, it was such a wonderful moment. I, I rewatched it last night uh, when you sent over your list. And, but yeah, just a beautiful film. And that moment is amazing. I would say the intensity and the intimacy were the things that stuck out. Yeah. I've never just watched that clip without the context of having watched the whole movie before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So can say just as a totally clip in a vacuum, you still get all you need to know to make that all work. Even just out of completely stripped of all that other stuff, you get mm-hmm. exactly what the dynamics are, the longing, the catharsis. I guess even the proximity of the close-up, not to be creepy and ruin your moment it feels like you're in the bed with them no that's totally right and (laughs) i mean hitchcock is documented as saying you know like the couple implies a third Mm. like thinking about the relationship between the camera and the couple and how implicating and involving it is to have the camera there in the scene with them and in his other films too obviously but i think sure yeah. yeah that that sense of presence and kind of voyeurism but something closer to direct involvement is absolutely at work in that moment. And it, yeah, it's just two beautiful faces. and Oh, absolutely. We bring so much cinematic, not in a bad way, cinematic baggage too. Definitely. You, you got bringing up Baby and Casablanca on the screen too. I know, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, and I'll, also at some point we should just do like a five-hour podcast on Cary Grant because I think Happy to. just one of the most fascinating people in the world. Absolutely. But we also, we had a, uh, I was remembering as you were saying how he plays kind of a jerk. We had an essay on Only Angels Have Wings, I don't know, probably mm. four or five years ago. And there was a line in it that was, has stuck in my head forever, but it's something to the effect of, I always forget that Cary Grant plays assholes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's such a likable guy at all times, but he's almost always playing people that on paper, if you were to strip them the context and put someone who's not Cary Grant in there, are just going to be so much different. <laughs> Mm-hmm. you got to be a Cary Grant fan, right? Oh, yeah. I'm a okay. big Cary Grant fan. I mean, I feel like what's great about the idea that he's always playing assholes, which is like only becomes true, I think, with, about his career after a certain point. Oh, yeah, sure, sure. And Sheila O'Malley has a really terrific essay, I think called oh, like does. Fat-Headed Guy Full of Pain, that's about sort of oh, really? tur- the turn of his star persona that is concretized by his being in this film specifically. Sheila's great, yeah. Yeah, just brilliant. But, you know, it makes sense to me because any guy who's that tall and high could get away with anything. You know what I mean? So there's something very realistic about him sort of just having this aura of entitlement and rakish energy because if Mm -hmm. you saw Cary Grant in real life, I mean, you'd be like, yeah, take my savings. Like, here's my social. Yeah. (laughs) Ruin my life. (laughs) Yeah. I think plenty of people said that to him over the years. Well, good for them. Good moment. Way to start us off. I like it. Thanks. (laughs) 
I'm not sure how we transition. Do we just... Uh, you just go. I just go. Now it's just you. All right. Tag. Well, this is a tonal switch and flip in lots of different ways. Uh, also, though, the I guess the commonality would be also talking about the end of a, ending of a movie. Mm. This is not a surprise to anybody, obviously, um, who I've talked to, because I have a hard time keeping my opinions to myself when I'm excited about things. But it's uh, from its last scene, the magical, wonderful, amazing dance scene from another round from Thomas Winterberg. Oh, my God. That I just have so many feelings about. <laughs> I'm tempted to want to be super analytical uh, and intellectual because you had such a great reflection on Notorious, and I'm going to be like, I just love this one. <laughs> I should say I'm writing about it for the issue. Don't give it all away. <laughs> <laughs> as much as someone can be a, a student of a scene, I have I've spent a lot of time with this one. And the crazy thing is usually the trade-off that you make when you watch a scene over and over mm. is the for lack of a better word, the juice gets sucked out of it a bit. Mm, it doesn't mm. quite work as well or doesn't hit you as hard. Mm. I was still up at three o'clock last night just getting the, the spine and the tingle like uh, Nabokov said. Mm. That's how it tells me this is touching me in some deep place and this is speaking to some like ancient part of my brain mm. that's beyond words. So yeah, it really, I'm making it way bigger of a deal. It's a wonderful dance scene at the end of a movie, which 99 times out of 100, I'm going to like anyway. <laughs> there was a great Alison Wilmore article in Vulture where it just said every movie should end with a dance or something like that. Mm. Mm-mm. And she was talking about Mamma Mia and all these other ones. And she was kind of making the case that's one of the things movies are so uniquely set up to do that other art forms just really can't. And it kind of combines the best of everything, you know, with the music and the dancing and the acting and the cinema. I would say in Vinterberg's case here, the editing in that scene just is just blows my mind, too. Specifically how the editor is tracking to that music so well. Yeah. I mean, it's just so well done. And I would recommend watching a scene 100 times in a row at some point for just the experience of it because you just start noticing so many more things by the 20th or 30th watch so yeah the editing is just oh man precise and on beat and just tracking to emotional stuff mm-hmm. as you could see my my words are just i like it i like it i like it um <laughs> there's so many wonderful things going on and, and i think for me the reason that i chose it to go first was because it's a moment that actually is so much more powerful when you do know all the things about it mm-hmm. that are going on mm-hmm. that it is a culmination of the entire movie yeah it's the moment where <laughs> i mean oh boy i'm gonna say it. uh it's basically edging the whole movie and then finally there's the full catharsis at the end, right? Right. And the full release. Like, that's the moment. Like, he builds you up. They talk about on an interview he did shaking the bottle with fizz. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know, like, we're, like, shaking the bottle the whole time and he's like, boom, there it goes at the end. And, oh, I you love know, that. Yeah. So there's that moment which is just, you know, our brains are so primed to respond to that anyway. Mm-hmm. But there's the fact that they're all kind of asking him to dance throughout the film. Right. And he's always directly saying, kind of hedging back. So that seed is yeah. planted. We know something's coming, even if we haven't been on the internet. Yeah. And yet, of course, Mads Mikkelsen dancing oh my God. was what most people knew before <laughs> before they even saw the film. So you're already been like, okay, he's going to dance. It's going to be cool. And then when it gets there, you're still like, oh my God, this is beautiful. And also then the part that really just makes me tear up when I watch it is the context. I don't know if you know, do you know the context of what's going on? Oh yeah. I'm fucking obsessed with another round. Yeah. Okay. I It was like my favorite film of that year by far. Yeah. It's it's now my favorite one. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I had something else there, but I, I had to switch it after the last few weeks. So yeah, just the whole backstory with, with, with Winterberg and his, and his daughter just dying four days into shooting. And he specifically, I've watched about every interview you can with him. And there's just a great one with Guillermo del Toro, who I should say should be a professional hype man for movies he loves because he's so good at yeah. <laughs> just pumping people up. So he was talking with Mads and Thomas about making this movie. And he just was talking about how, you know, in specific, 
Like, they were making this whole movie for her at that point when he decides to come back to shoot the film. Mm-hmm. And he's just, you know, he's like, basically, I'm making this with my friends. They're going to support and prop me up, carry me through this experience. And then slowly, like, he comes to see the experience of the movie and of that scene especially mm-hmm. as kind of his own journey through, like, just the awful messiness of grief and life. And, you know, in the movie, it's coming in the context of a few hours past the friend's funeral who, who had died. Mm-hmm. But also this party of kind of graduates on the street mm-hmm. drinking and you've got this song I've never heard before and probably would hate in most contexts, but now I just love so much. <laughs> There's a lot that I love about it. And I think the experience of the bittersweetness of life and the fact that I don't know how else you end a movie like Another Round with and have it work. And so uh, to find that ending and to find that freeze frame at the end, it's just, uh, it's just beautiful. You can call the rest out. It's just beautiful. The freeze frame is so smart, so smart. right? Because he's like, poised flying or dying flying or dying exactly like it's obvious but it's just perfect it's so good it's so good it could be so bad if it's not done well yes it could be so cheesy and cop out totally it's right on the lip of corniness but it's like just yeah i mean it's so moving i love that movie i'm so glad to hear that yeah Yeah, i think the moment when they're initially at the birthday dinner at the beginning and everyone's sort of just at the beginning of negotiating their depression nicholson (laughs) drinks this wine that he's not really expecting to drink and then he just really downs it and the camera kind of stays on his face and then he just produces a tear yeah it is so like that's probably the moment when i got completely sucked into the film and was like oh my god there's like an emotional precision here that's a great word yeah that is so remarkable and like feels so immediate great like male melodrama (laughs) and pig i feel like the two of them oh interesting it was just like dudes are sad dudes are sad yeah are the men all right (laughs) the third element so there's the fact that it's just a great scene in and of itself i think you Mm. could show it to almost any human and they'd have some response then the fact that it's like a culmination of theme and all the backstories and the Mm -hmm. personal stories Mm -hmm. they you know in one of the interviews mad specifically said that Thomas's daughter, Ida, was especially looking forward to that scene. And that, you oh know, he gosh. brought his wife. He, yeah, the thing you just did was what Vinterberg does when, when he says that in the interview. And he brought his wife to the set. I teared up talking about it. I'm going to read this quote. Hmm. I, think I think I can get everybody crying here. So this was an interview magazine to, to make sure I credit it properly. And it was one of those, you know, an interview, they, they interview mm-hmm. each other. So there's mm-hmm. not. Mm-hmm. So this is him writing or talking, I guess, directly to, to Mads. So the director, Thomas Vinterberg, says... Mads, watching you that day dancing was a one-to-one experience of how the film is. It was our beautiful catastrophe in private life. Ida was dead and you were dancing and everything made sense. Everything was so great in that moment. And you, of course, in particular, were absolutely outstanding with your dance. And yet, still behind us, there was this shadow, this deep tragedy. And I think that's the same feeling you get at the end of the movie. Absolutely. It's the same same feeling Martin has at the end of this movie. Your friend had passed away and yet still you are weightless and everything is possible. And that sensation is just overwhelming. Wow. Yeah. All of their interviews, which I would also suggest as its own genre of things to watch on YouTube, uh, mm-hmm. they're all like that. And I somehow I missed all of that until after I'd seen the film. And then and then I came back and everyone's like, oh, yeah, duh, that, that's the thing that everybody kind of knew about the backstory. But I just think it's so, such an incredible piece of filmmaking and just personally just touches touches me so much. And then the last piece, which you can't separate it from, even though you couldn't have known in advance, was when you when you watched it. Like we all watched that and depending on our viewing habits, either a year or around a year into a pandemic where we were, we were all trapped inside of a house and uh, and quarantining. And I can't untie that feeling from watching this movie. And, and that mm-hmm. that ending was, I feel like, hit a hundred times harder because of the fact that like, Nobody's out dancing in the streets. No one's having parties. Mm-hmm. So yeah, for, it had all the elements I want from a scene. So I, I would nominate that as maybe a perfect movie scene. Nice. Yeah, hard to follow, <laughs> but 
<laughs> yeah. We continue regardless. Yeah. Okay, my second moment. This is from Danny Boyle's 2007 film Sunshine. I wanted to do a genre film because I just love sci-fi and horror and work on those types of films quite a bit. And it feels like a Danny Boyle film that people haven't seen as much. I know. Which is weird because everyone in it is really famous. It's a crazy murderer's row. Of, they very much are, yeah. You know, big ensemble cast and it's a space movie about jump-starting the sun, which is dying <laughs> with a bomb. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure the science is sound. <laughs> the thing about that is like... I I kind of hate space. I kind of like hate. Whoa. Yeah, I do. This is a hot take. Wait, wait, wait. We got to stop there. Wait, what, do you, what does that even mean? Chad, I don't think we have any business up there, honestly. I, okay. just, I think we have a lot to deal with down here. You're isolationist, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not, it's not, a, it's not like a, a terror of space. I've heard that a lot. No, it's not. It's not. It's that I, I like horror films set in space. You know, I love Event Horizon. Oh, yeah, that's good. Obviously, the alien films. Oh, sure. Yeah. But stuff like Interstellar, you can miss me with that. Gravity. <laughs> I don't care about that. What about like 2001, though? I think 2001 is really boring, to be honest. Okay. Well, we're just dropping the hot takes today. Beautiful looking, but like extremely boring, no? Like very easy to reference and obviously like good to have in mind. I would say it's a film I often fall asleep during, but I really enjoy doing that. Well, there you go. But I, I've never fallen asleep at the same part, so I've seen it all many, many times. <laughs> Anyway. 2001, not my moment. But Sunshine, I do really like claustrophobic, everyone has a special skill ensemble type of situations. I love those movies. Anything with that. Often for heist films or something like that, where there's like one person on locks and one person on whatever. Yeah, Fran called that a competency porn, which I love. Oh, totally. <laughs> that's so perfect. I love watching competency porn Absolutely. Yes. Oh my gosh. That's a great way to put that. I yeah. love it. Yeah, is that great? Yeah. I love how assigned everyone's roles are on a spaceship or or even a ship like a submarine or any any place where people are meant to do individual things but there's a moment kind of early on in sunshine when they have to repair a broken solar shield like all space movies it's one of those things where there's obstructions and you get over them and then something else happens and it's partially accidents and partially human hubris at like going into space in the first place it's always something in space mm. or finding out you've been assigned to a death mission or something like that so yeah. the captain Kaneda who's played by Hiroyuki Sanada who is from the Twilight Samurai another film I absolutely love and he just has a great face for film for the camera, like really expressive, really beautiful. So he he's the captain. He sacrifices himself on this solar shield repair mission. Yeah. The whole movie is shot really weirdly. And in that scene in particular, this very dramatic scene, and we see a lot of it as if from like the pro a profile set in helmet camera. So his face is in very close profile and we kind of see what he sees, which is this sort of like boundless, horizonless horizon of outer space. And a lot of it is super dark or super light, obviously, the sun. You're talking about within this shot here or the whole film? The whole film, but the whole film's aesthetic is pretty condensed in, in this scene, I would say. But it, it's just rising tension as everyone is like, you don't have enough time to be out there come back to the ship. And he's like, <laughs> I'm not coming back to the ship. Goodbye. So he's out there. And part of that is because as we learn through the character of Searle, who is like the psychological expert in the ship, which is a fascinating role that you don't see as much. Could you say the actor's name? I track it by the actor's name. Yeah, it's Cliff Curtis. Okay. Cliff Curtis plays Searle, who, you know, is helping everyone cope with the sort of incrementally escalating trauma of being on the ship. Yes. Part of what's interesting about the fact that they're there to jumpstart the sun 
is that being exposed to the sun does feel like this kind of transcendent or sublime experience in the classical sense, like yeah. as something so big that makes you feel small and disposable or in threat. And then yeah. there's this undercurrent of obsession of like, well, what would it be like to really look at the sun? I mean, in a way, it's a sci-fi movie about looking at the sun. Oh, man, I've been doing that since I was a kid. <laughs> yeah, exactly. When they told me you could go blind doing it, I was like, let me see if, if I could just look real quick. Yeah, so the scene kind of culminates in Canada out there. Everyone's like, come back. And he's like, no, <laughs> no, it's totally about spectatorship because they're all, of course, on with separate monitors kind of watching yeah. him, watching what he sees. They're all in different cells of the ship. We keep cutting between them. So it creates a sense of continuity or spatial unity. And Searle is leaning forward and he already has like blisters on his face from doing this kind of mediated exposure to the sun via the viewing room. And he's like, what do you see? Yeah. What do you see? And he says it twice. And Kaneda doesn't respond. But what happens is John Murphy's score is kind of rising and rising. So good, yeah. Oh, my God. The Adagio. <laughs> yeah, it's the Adagio in D minor. And it's been adapted all over the place, um, including The Lovely Bones, which is a potentially <laughs> not great film that I no, am not pretty into. It is not a great film. I don't care. <laughs> Veronica, today. I'll go to the mat. 2001, bad Lovely Bones, good. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, fight me. <laughs> There's things about it I feel are really fascinating and particularly one moment. There's a potency that's activated very much from that music. That's cheating, though. <laughs> that is not cheating. It's literally filmmaking, Chad. I know. <laughs> There's something in my brain that just really responds to it to the point where when I was watching Wonder Woman 1984, which I will say I do not think is a good film. Phew. I just had it on HBO one day when I was like working and there's a scene when she like flies maybe for the first time and that music comes on and I was like, why does this feel moving? Like what? Yeah. Why do I feel involved in this scene in a movie that I just do not think is good? And then I looked it up and I was like, for fuck's sake, it's the sunshine music. That's why <laughs> it's the music from the what do you see scene? It's not like a riff on it's actually literally. No, it literally is. Yeah, because oh, wow. it's been used. I mean, if you go to the Wikipedia for this Murphy Adagio and D minor, it's like so many things like Olympic commercials, promos for other space films. But are you saying it was written for this movie? I believe it was, or at okay. least was first used in this film. Most prominently used. Yes, in like, I yeah. believe so. Yeah. Kicked off the Adagio explosion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of like when Kronos Quartet did that music for Requiem for a Dream, and then it was used mm -hmm. in like the Lord of the Rings trailers, like anywhere that wanted to bring up this kind of epic throbbing mood and there's definitely like an epic throb to the adagio d minor that is the right phrase an epic throb you know it is a self-sacrifice in that scene for the good of the ship but it's also this perverse desire to look at the sun to actually just give in and I love that you know you really get a sense that these characters are on the edge of something and that they're leaving order and logic behind and mm -hmm. and you see Kaneda like turn toward the sun and it totally obliterates the frame with orange light yeah I don't know like I think a lot of people could see that and be like it's corny and dumb but there's something about it that even the first time I saw it I was like completely swept up by it yeah. um so that is my second moment and I love I love that you picked that um was nowhere on my radar as even a in the Veronica orbit. Yeah. I'm so glad that you brought this big genre movie to it because yeah. it was it's such a example of how good Hollywood filmmaking can happen. Mm. Plus you get, you know, my 
<laughs> I call that a moment of transcendence. He's literally uh, sacrificed slash transcendence, which is always, you know, as a person faced very religiously, that's kind of primed into my brain too. So, but I, I more just love that you picked that particular moment because I think those moments are as worthy of talking about and studying. Yeah. I don't think a lot of people probably talk about sunshine in, in film class. Maybe you do, which would be great. You should. I do. Yeah, I teach it in a <laughs> sci-fi class. Oh, awesome. I'll just say quickly that the runner-up was the moment in Gattaca when Ethan Hawke's character is like, I, I never saved anything for the swim back. That's Ooh. also like a super like corny moment, but the great score to that movie, yeah. great aesthetic. And I love that film. Well, you keep saying corny, but like what's what's corny about? Well, I think they're both really melodramatic. They are for sure. There's a crazy like heightened sense of sensation and emotion that I'm really open to. I'm really receptive to. I love melodrama, but I love that. It's easy for me to sort of give over to it. And, you know, I do think that like emotions are that big. Yes. Like they really are that potent, that overwhelming, that central it does feel a bit I don't know like something you'd etch on wood and put on a sign that you buy at Marshall's or something like that but it's in context <laughs> of the film it's really appropriately scaled yeah I was gonna say it's a fascinating discussion to think about how, how moments are now so extractable from there yeah sometimes to their detriment their source stuff and, and how like nobody watched movies the way that we'd watched them in the last 10 years like for 100 years of movies you, you watched a movie mm -hmm. the meanification is stuff that I both a huge fan of when it's done well and also feel like this comes with the cost somehow. Yes. <laughs> you know, sucking some of the, the vitality out of these clips or as much as I've just said, a lot of the clips we've chosen hold up without the context. I still think the context is really, really important that the moments are embedded in. Yeah. So you probably saw me smiling earlier um, when you're talking about sunshine in the moment when like the sun is just getting rising and you specifically said something about the bigness of things and the smallness of man. Mm. So this is a scene from Joe versus the volcano. Anybody who knows anything about me knows I've been obsessed with this movie for about getting old, 25 years. My history goes way back. This is one of those ones where there's no possible way I could be even remotely objective about it. And as opposed to another round where I think anyone on earth would love that scene and that movie, I think Joe versus the volcano is your mileage maybe very type of situation. So I really love it. <laughs> I actually saw it in the theater, which if anyone's been listening to all 10 episodes of the podcast, are going to notice. I went to a lot of movies that were rated PG in the late 80s. One, because I was alive and young, but two, because I wasn't allowed to see anything that wasn't rated PG. And PG was like rated X in my parents' world. There could be a swear word in there. So you, you know, had to be really careful. So there was a period in, in, I was nine or 10 years old, where so many of my favorite movies came mm, out. And mm. it's either that, that was a really strong era of filmmaking or that I was a really impressionable viewer at that time. And mm -hmm. I couldn't tell you which is which. So I've been trying to sell people on Joe versus the Volcano. I saw it and actually saw it and hated it as a kid. It was not like how movies are. <laughs> and I couldn't figure out what was happening. It had such a heightened reality. And, and I should say, mm. I wrote about it a few years ago, but it took me a full 10 years to write about because I could just never even figure out how to convey what it was I liked so much about it. Mm. And the kind of the entry point I found was like, it's basically a fairy tale. If you don't take it literally, it, may, it just means a lot more. Mm. As a kid, I missed all of that. Specifically the third act, which I still have many, many problems with in that movie. Not enough to make me not love it, but it's it's definitely a, a step down. <laughs> so the really basic plot synopsis is Joe Banks, played by Tom Hanks, is a guy working sounds funny to say out loud. I don't think I've said working in like a rectal probe company factory down in the basement and kind of being a little micromanager of little tiny things. And he's got Dan Hedaya being the boss. This is a, a fairly big clip online where he's just, I know you can get the job, but can you do the job? So he's just in this like basement thing with this terrible lighting, basically needs to escape his environment. Is a hypochondriac, always feels sick, mm. goes to a doctor played by that, uh, what's that guy who did, um, oh, Robert Stack. Mm. And the doctor tells him he has a brain cloud, which... Since he's like, finally, he's like, I knew it. I didn't know it, but I knew it. And he basically tells him, you, you're going to feel totally fine for about six months, then you're going to die. 
So it's kind of one of those, you know, existential journeys from that point or hero's, hero's journey. Mm-hmm. It kind of opens his eyes to life and kind of he decides he wants to live his life. And then in that brief moment, Lloyd Bridges swoops in as this eccentric billionaire and says, I've got an offer for you since you're going to die anyway of this brain cloud thing. Go to Wapaniwu with this island um, that no one's ever heard of where he, <laughs> this is not brief at all, is it? <laughs> but he's got to jump into a volcano, which is right there in the title. He's got to jump into a volcano and die and sacrifice himself. Maybe a, another inverse echo of the sunshine guy giving up his life for the crew. He's given up his life for the island. Yeah, yeah. So he's got to jump into this volcano and die. Before that, he's going to be treated like a king. Though. So it's the whole thing is, I'll give you a fancy boat. You're going to sail with my daughter. Mm. You get to this island. You're going to be fed like a king. It's going to be this grand celebration. And then at the end, you got to jump into a volcano and, and die because every hundred years, someone has to sacrifice themselves okay, to save okay. the island. So in that context, he is... On the journey, and they're about halfway through the movie, they're on this boat. Him and Meg Ryan plays three characters. Uh, one of the Meg Ryan characters is with him at this moment, mm. and they're on the boat. There's a big storm. Um, the boat capsizes. They end up on this raft, pretty much a raft in the middle of nowhere, where he just floats on a raft with her, and she's, I don't know if she's passed out or dehydrated. She's non-existent in the scene. But he's keeping her. He's giving her little drops of water to keep her alive. But he's basically screwed. He's in the middle of an ocean. There is absolutely no chance of survival. And he is parched. It's a few days in. At first, he's kind of dancing on the thing. But by the end, he's just like, he's about to die at this moment. Mm -hmm. So then, and this is the moment of the moment, (laughs) this big, huge moon starts to just rise. And it's very, I don't know if you guys have seen the clip, it's very not realistic looking. Mm. I've used it as my banner on Twitter for, I don't know, 10 years. Mm, Uh, mm. Brianna painted a really nice picture of what I wrote about it. So, um, and I have that up in my room. I'm just a real big nerd about that moment. And the moon starts to rise and he says this thing that just, I mean, I watched it again last night and I'm like, yeah, no, this this still very much works. And where he just says, you know, dear God, (laughs) uh, (laughs) thank you for my life. Mm. And then he says, and I love that he doesn't finish this line specifically. He just says, I forgot how big, as he's looking at this just a gigantic moon that's filling the whole screen and he's kind of got his arms. It's basically just like, we are these small little creatures in the universe. And man, my God, even though I'm about to die in this, I'm so thankful that I had a life. I'm so thankful I got to experience a universe with a moon like this. And it just everything, he just immediately, it's like the, the greatest... Uh, gratitude exercise of all time that moment got me when i was a kid uh even though i didn't like the movie much and then it really started getting me in my my early 20s when i was feeling you know my my existential worries so i watch it like a kind of a comforting ball now a lot and probably i don't know 10 times a year uh, not the movie but but that scene specifically mm. i don't have any analytical reasons for liking it i just think it does everything that i want a movie moment to do it's really cool to hear the sort of resonances between the stuff that we picked. Yeah. A lot of death. <laughs> a lot of... <laughs> and catharsis. Yeah, very metal moments episode. Yeah, this is our emo pod. Every pod is an emo <laughs> pod for me, Chad. Come on. To be fair. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing um, I always feel, you know, defensive about liking Joker's like pre-defensive. Mm. I'm already ready to defend whatever's going <laughs> to come at me. Really? People think it's a joke when you recommend it. That's usually the first move. Like, oh, that's funny. He's got his little quirky. He likes this. Okay, okay. But I really genuinely love that movie. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, I've, I've written a lot about it and studied it a lot and thought about it a lot and read the screen. I mean, I just really, there was... A very a wonderful uh, but not well-populated Joe vs. Volcano website like 10 years ago that I used to be on quite a lot. Wow. <laughs> that moment is just very representative to me. Um, I got to give him credit because I'm sure he's going to listen. That my friend from the video store, um, I worked at Scarecrow Video, which I still tell anyone who listens, was my favorite job I've ever had. I want to go back there and have that job for the rest of my life. But it's the biggest video store in Seattle, uh, I think now, inventory-wise, on the maybe in, in North America. Mm. My friend Ed there did what I'm doing now to you guys. I just kept talking about this movie and I was like, fine, I'll 
watch it. I remember hating to watch it, but I got fully into that. It was all full credit to him. Um, mm. He was an evangelist for it and still is. And I turned into evangelist around 20. So I've been been trying to spread the word for 25 years. Like this is really good movie worth watching. Third act has problems. That's fine. It's a really good movie. Well, I love that we can use this platform to spread the good word. <laughs> But I think there has been some question of whether I do it as a bit or a joke. And no, sure, I sure. genuine, genuinely love the movie. It yeah. means as much to me as any of these other moments I'm talking about. And as, you know, now one of those things where it's just weirdly identified with yourself because you've been talking about it for so long. Chad versus the volcano. Yeah. For better or worse. Yeah. Yeah. No, I totally hear you on the idea of just like earnest spectatorship, like earnest enthusiasm. Yeah. I mean, the idea of being into something ironically, at least as a film goer, just has no appeal for me. So little reward to that. You know, it's way more interesting to sort of hate things specifically than it is to like enjoy them, you know, not in earnest. I don't understand that at all. I mean, it's it's a very big and growing branch of how people are taking movies in. I know. Not for us, though. Yeah, I know. And I feel like we're fighting against a massive tide that's going to just keep overtaking us. Yeah. But I still think it's the way to be. I'd rather drown in that pool than be in the other one. Same, same. Well, we have such an exciting development for this episode. <laughs> I'm so excited. We're pulling the curtain back um, and we're going to hear from our totally gifted producer and editor, Eli Sands, for a moment. Aw, shucks. Well, hello. <laughs> <laughs> My name is Eli Sands and I'm very happy to be sharing a movie moment that means a lot to me. Great. A little bit about me. I work in education. I produce and edit the BWDR podcast, and I also co-host the podcast Deep Cut, where I discuss international art house and independent directors with my two close friends, Ben and Wilson. I've listened to your podcast many times. You're great, so you got it. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> I am someone who loves family history. Mm. I'm constantly asking my family members for stories that go way back in my family history and from their own lives. And that is a huge point of connection to my grandmother, Rhoda, for me, who is my mom's mom. Mm. And we also love to watch movies together. Mm. She's a huge Turner Classic movie watcher. Oh. One of my favorite things to do when I visit her is to watch mm. movies together. Love that. In December, I had the chance to sit down and watch The Dybbuk from 1937 with my grandma. And that's a movie that she watched in theaters when she was nine years old. And she's now 93. Holy shit. Sorry, Grandma, for saying your age on mine. <laughs> it was such a special experience because it's a movie that means a lot to my grandma. And it's an experience that I got to share with her. And the moment I'm going to pick is a little bit of a cheat. <laughs> but it was inspired by what Veronica said earlier about how we can misremember moments from movies. Mm -hmm. As we sat down to watch the movie together, my grandma told me that there's an image from the movie that has always stuck with her. That image is of Leia, the main character, who is a bride-to-be who's possessed by an angry spirit known as a dybbuk in Jewish mysticism, rising from her grave. Mm -hmm. We got to the end of the movie, and that image was not in the movie. <laughs> it was this moment that my grandma had not remembered, at least from this restoration of the movie, but meant a lot to her and left a mark on her as a nine-year-old. Oh. And she carried it for years and years. And even though we didn't find it together in this movie, that experience is now part of this movie for me. Mm -hmm. Even without that, the Dybbuk would mean a lot to me because of my interest in my lost 
Jewish family history from the old country mm-hmm. and my more accessible family history. Mm-hmm. But this is a moment that does not exist yet is very real for me mm-hmm. and carries a lot of emotion because I love my grandma a lot. Mm. Yeah. Oh, that's great. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> what was her reaction to realizing the movie it was ending and this image had not come on screen? It was funny. I was sort of like, Grandma, that moment didn't happen. <laughs> and she said, oh, I guess that was from a different movie or it didn't happen. That's so wild. And we talked about it a little bit and we laughed about it. And then we talked about the rest of the movie together. It's fascinating. That's amazing. <laughs> it seems like it could even be possible that someday you will come across the image somewhere else. Yeah. I have thought about that. Yeah, that would be special, but I have no idea in what movie that would be. Yeah, <laughs> right? That's a crazy scavenger hunt. Yeah. Do you like rabbit holes? Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Oh, man. I've never watched a film with a grandparent, but I've watched so many movies with my mom. My mom is a really big movie person, loves James Bond, loves Indiana Jones, (laughs) loves horror films, action films, Clint Eastwood. She's a just has really strange taste, which I've inherited very much. (laughs) I love watching her watch films. And I love watching you watching her watch films. If you've ever followed my Instagram. Instagram, you uh, some great stuff on there's there. definitely some highlight <laughs> reels of me covertly taping my mom reacting to films in real time. <laughs> We should just have a Twitch. But I, no, I'm keenly aware of like how it's not forever. Yeah. You know, yeah. like those reactions are temporary and to experience them is such a privilege. A power of movies is already that you get to re-experience the emotion that you experienced the first time you watched the movie. Mm-hmm. But you also get to re-experience the context in which you watch the movie mm-hmm. and the people with whom you watched that movie. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of uh, the whole seed of the idea for, for the website all those years ago was exactly that. Mm. That's all part of why we all watch movies. And I mm-hmm. was worried that doesn't get talked about nearly enough and wanted to do anything I could to, to make a small dent against that. I mean, I, I like to read film theory. <laughs> I really like to hear stories like Eli's way more. Yeah. I mean, it's not to disrespect all the other stuff because I, I geek out on that stuff all the time. But none that pulls at my heartstrings the same way. You know, it's kind of a head versus the heart and I usually go with the heart in the end. Well, it's funny that you say it because I feel like so much criticism is the head. Mm-hmm. We joke about it. It's like, did we like it or not? You know, is it good or yeah. bad? Which is a fine way to talk about it. But <laughs> film theory, especially older film theory from like the 20s and 30s precisely, it's so poetic. It's so lyrical. It's it's so weird. Yes. You know? Absolutely. Even like Virginia Woolf, like criticizing it is a, is a fascinating essay. Yeah. But I mean, just, yeah, because they're trying to grapple with this whole, like, what is this thing? And I yeah. think, yeah, a lot of that just got flattened out in ways that don't always benefit engagement or interest for me anyway. I can only read so much film theory <laughs> before my eyes roll over. Um, and I'm like, wait, why am, why am I watching these movies again? Mm. And again, not to disrespect that, I have, a, I have a film degree. I love film studies. But there there is a limit at which I'm like, okay, but how about this? Mm. When I really need a hit of something to lift my spirits, it's I'm not going to go read about <laughs> camera angles or close-ups mm-hmm. or that kind of stuff. As much as I love that stuff, uh, I'm going to watch one of these scenes we're talking about. You know? mm-hmm. Thank you for letting me step out from behind the curtain <laughs> and share my experience of watching The Dibbic with my grandma. You forget that we want you out of the curtain. Well, that's fine with us. We're happy to yeah. have you anytime. I want to have that Howard Stern style show where we're just <laughs> hearing from you the entire time. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> And anytime you say anything, just say, I don't know about that. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) 
Okay, my last moment. It's a specific point in a very short film, a three-minute film made by Bruce Bailey in 1966 called All My Life. It's a 16-millimeter film shot in Mendocino, inspired by this Ella Fitzgerald recording of a song titled All My Life. and. Yeah the quote-unquote quality of light for three summer days in Northern California. Mm. Bailey, he died in 2020. He founded uh, Canyon Cinema in 1961, which was a filmmaker's cooperative and exhibition space for independent experimental film. And the way I came to this film was through a graduate seminar that I took to come back to the (laughs) elitism. No, No, I took this seminar from uh, Daniel Morgan at University of Pittsburgh. He's now at University of Chicago mentor and friend and Mm -hmm. it was on camera movement and uh, aesthetics this is a moment motored by camera movement so the three minutes consists of this kind of slow leftward movement along a fence outdoors there's not a lot else going on i love to displace the idea of what's happening in a film away from like plot events and toward more abstract or incidental qualities so what happens in this film is like flowers on the fence Mm -hmm. which are bright red and beautiful and really at a contrast with the blue of the sky and the lyrics of Fitzgerald's song which are just you know she's like all my love has been waiting for you my life is sublime now that I'm giving all my love you seem so lovely so far above me I'm almost afraid to look but I adore you I pledge before you my heart that's an open book and there is just this sense of like the heart as an open book that you get from this film. And I think especially watching it, like if you live in a colder climate, there's just something so <laughs> evocative and, and magical. Like you can almost feel the the temperature of the air as being kind of warm. And there's a unhurriedness to the pace of the movement. And at the end, or about two minutes in, so like two thirds of the way into the film, there's this sort of seemingly unmotivated movement of the camera upward past electrical lines just to the sky. And that's all that happens is you move left, 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 and then up. And there is something to go back to this like motif of transcendence that we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. There just feels like there's something transcendent and minor and emotional about that movement that is not about anticipating or responding to action on screen. It's not about revealing anything. If anything, we see less once we go up there. Like it's just sky. (laughs) We leave the fence. We leave the flowers. I don't know. And it just reminds me of like, you know, summer afternoons where you're not really doing anything and there is this equality of light and temperature and ease and openness where you feel like everything is ahead of you and a sensation of pure potential that just feels, I don't know, romantic and reassuring and really, really moving to me in that film. I've screened it for students and I feel like sometimes they're just like, well, what was that? <laughs> you know? Well, no. Well, that was not that was not the reaction I had to watch it. Oh, I'm so glad. Yeah. How did you how did you like it? Because I know you just watched it. I just want it was just such a gift. I, I, I never knew it existed until mm. last night. And I'm so glad I know that it exists now. Yeah. What you said was spot on and exact. I mean, you hit everything that it is only three minutes. So I know there's not much to say about it, but um, yeah. I didn't know what to expect. I was like, I, I don't feel like I know all of your movie taste, but I feel like I'm mostly aware of certain things. And this was like not even on my radar as a thing to even think about, let alone that it was going to be a clip that I was going to be watching last night in preparation for this. Yeah. And, uh, just right, in the, right when the music hits. Uh, I'm, I'm transported, you know? Yes. Yeah. I mean, we get so fancy with our their intellectual theory sometimes but uh the combination of of uh, a good visual and good music is just one of the best things in the world yeah and i think you just can't you can't beat that and i know i jokingly said it was cheating earlier this is the opposite of cheating this is <laughs> 
This is a perfect uh, syncresis, I believe is the word. None of it is cheating. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I, I do think people, how about this? I do think in some modern American filmmaking, sometimes music is used as a cheap substitute for feeling, for emotion. For okay, I'll, I'll take yeah, that. Yeah, that, that, that was the way I meant it. Was, I'll take it that. Can be, it can be done poorly. I'll take this that. This would be yeah. the opposite. The exact opposite. This was just perfect. And, you know, I have probably going back to my childhood again, which I'm always going back to, I guess, uh, I'm getting so old, what you keep saying. I have so many videos like that, and that was my main camera move. Mm -hmm. I didn't have special effects. Mm -hmm. I probably didn't fully understand uh, why I was so drawn to transcendence yet. Mm. But I did so many pan up to the skies. That was always my move at the end. Mm -hmm. And I had no idea that was coming. I saw it in your notes. You're like, it's a clip, it's three minutes, camera movement at the end. Mm -hmm. So I was like, okay, there's a camera movement coming at the end. It was so graceful and languid and perfect and lilting and just... Oh, so, this is so great. Yeah, that's beautifully put. And the time it took to listen to us talk about it, you could have watched it twice already. Totally. And it, so it's, I would recommend anyone in the world check it out and just be open to it because I think I think it's a wonderful piece of, of filmmaking. Some any of us could make, but only Bruce Bally did make. So. Yeah, languid is the perfect word. It really, it is that feeling, which I haven't had in years now of like yeah. being in a car in the summer with the windows down and the air accessible to you and the right song on the speakers, you know? The right song is key. Yeah. That's sensational is really, really powerful. Yeah, it's got a warmth to it, too. Yeah, and plus really old recordings or songs oh. always pull pull up that nostalgia button in me, so. Sure. I, but I do think specifically this this was a perfect combination of, of words and music. And, and I, yeah, just thank you for sharing it with me. It was so cool. You're so welcome. And one moment I won't talk about, but it's just Rowan here is in Margaret Kenneth Lonergan's movie. He does a continual bird's eye view. He pans up continually to the sky. And when I interviewed him, he talked about how he's like, yeah, I wanted this continual perspective that you could not get away from that. Here's the intense melodrama of the movie. And also a reminder that these are little people on a little planet with, mm -hmm. you know, all the, and he has like uh, the overture from, um, it's so close to his name, I mess it up. The Lonergan movement of a Wagner opera, mm. <laughs> something like that. So it's swelling strings and this camera movement up are just this continual, like every, instead of like a fade out, he'll just mm. swoop up. That's, that's where my heart is always. I, I just think that toggling of perspectives is the best thing in the world of everything matters so much. Nothing matters at all. Mm. We're so small. We're little ants on a little planet. So for my last moment, um, it's one that is uh, very important to me, I guess, as these all are. It's a moment from Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, which... I'm pretty comfortable saying Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind is my favorite movie. Mm. I thought about it a lot, uh, way too much. Um, Veronica probably remembers. Um, during the pandemic, you know, I famously was not going to movies. But there's this wonderful theater in Seattle called The Beacon. Maybe a 30 to 40 seat theater. Um, used to be like, I believe, a yoga studio or something like that. They bought it, stripped it out, remodeled it, made a little, one real little screen. I think it's a great little theater. Cool. They opened, unfortunately, like a year before the pandemic started. Not a great time to open a small theater, even in Seattle. And during the pandemic, they came up with a great idea, which is you can rent out the theater. And since it's a small theater as opposed to a big auditorium to rent out, it's pretty cheap and affordable. Mm. So my wife, as a birthday present of February 2021, hadn't seen a movie in over a year in a theater um, at that point. And she rented out the theater for me for my birthday. And me and my two kids, who were finally old enough to watch and enjoy a movie like Eternal Sunshine, the four of us just went in the middle of the pandemic and uh, had a little theater to ourselves and they served you popcorn. Mm. I got to pick any movie I wanted to screen because <laughs> The Beacon is great <laughs> and they'll bring in any movie. But that was like a you know two month crisis in my head. And I eventually picked Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. So I maybe will stop watching it every year because that was such a perfect memory to mm. be able to see it like that. Highly recommend The Beacon in general if you're anywhere in the Seattle area. They still do rent out the theater in addition to regular screenings now. It's just a wonderful experience. Cool. Um, you can bring up to like 20 or 30 people if you want mm. to make the cost really low. So the moment I picked, uh, jokingly, half-jokingly would say the moment is all the movie. 
I, time is such a big thing for me in terms of thinking about, like, it's, it goes back to, again, to my childhood. I've just always been fascinated by the passing of time. Any book or movie that starts with a character being young and ends with them being old just feels right to me. The vast expanse and passing of time and how weird it is to move through life, whether that's in like a boyhood way where it's much more like mm. tracking the character, literally the physical actor, mm. or whether it's somewhere where the character is young and middle. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind plays with time in such a way that like, my brain never gets tired of it. Mm -hmm. It plays with time, it plays with memory, it plays with pretty much all the things that are important to me that I'm thinking about on my own anyway. Mm -hmm. And it rearranges them. And I think when I wrote about it, I said kind of like a Rubik's Cube of all these things. But it's also so easy to follow. With the script from Charlie Kaufman is so good all the way through at keeping you grounded in this very complicated, shifting mental puzzle. There's the moment that I pick is this moment. It's when they're at the beach. I don't know if I can explain this. You have to. <laughs> I know. No, I know. No, I mean, like, literally the, what's happening in the scene, I can't explain. Like, if you've seen the movie, you, you absolutely know because it's not confusing. So it's the beginning of their relationship, but it's the end mm -hmm. of the movie right. because he, they're erasing his memories one by one. Mm -hmm. So this actual scene literally is taking place inside of his head. So they're sitting on the beach, and, and this is the very first time they met, but it's done with the sadness of this is the last memory in his head. Mm -hmm. It's the most existential meat cute of all time, I guess. Mm. I don't even know how you conceptualize a moment like that, uh, let alone create it. It's so beautiful to me. It's just a simple scene on the beach. They met at a beach party. She's wearing the now iconic bright orange hoodie that tracks throughout the movie as kind of a visual of her. Mm. He sees her on the beach. He talks about how he saw her, how she seemed interesting, how he loved that shirt, even though he came to hate it later because she wore it all the time. I've never seen a moment like that in a movie where it's playing with all of my favorite emotions at once and jumbling them up in very strange ways. And the feeling that I get, weirdly for me, is that same feeling of these other moments I've been talking about with another round and, and Joe versus Volcano, which is I just, I just feel grounded in the cosmic perspective of the universe and the the fact that life is just like this for everybody and that nothing really makes a lot of sense mm -hmm. and that we're always trying to put all this stuff together in our head and that you can look at a thing a thousand different ways and see it a thousand different ways and and I really just love the poignancy of that moment so the the key line for me is uh, it's very simple but it's something to the effect of her saying like this is it Joel this is this is like the last moment and he said I know and, and she says well what do we do and he just says enjoy it and then the camera pans to them running on the beach not in a cheesy way, in a sad, happy way. <laughs> and then transitions into this next, what I could have easily picked as a, another moment, um, scene where he goes through the regrets he had about how he handled that first time they met. Mm. <laughs> and then it kind of carries you on to the end of the movie. And the one thing to kind of undercut all this and make it a little bit lighter is in the original, this is my favorite, maybe one of my favorite film facts, the original screenplay, Charlie Kaufman has them continue to meet over and over again throughout the rest of their life, all the way to the nursing home, mm. continually breaking up with each other and making each other miserable mm, so romantic and it's the most depressing ending that would have been an intellectually like oh clever that would have just ruined the entire movie so thank god someone cut him off at a perfect stopping point which was almost what i picked for my moment as well the very the very last ending minute of the film is also i think a beautiful moment so i love eternal sunshine you know i haven't seen it in years oh, okay adaptation is the kaufman that i oh, yeah. cleave to the most so good so good so good Big Nicolas Cage fan, as you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just hearing you describe it, it's funny. I feel like there is a little bit of a, a genre of moments like that where you're viewing something that took place at the beginning of a relationship, but from the perspective of the end. Yeah. And so what feels like all this potential in the original time is then displaced and turned into fertile ground for regret and nostalgia. Yeah, yearning and nostalgia and regret. I find that extremely moving too. And, and maybe it goes the other way as well. Like at the end of La La Land, 
a movie I do not like. <laughs> I knew that. You know, but I'm just saying it for our listeners. And I did like La La Land and anyone can fight me. I will defend it. Nobody think I like it. <laughs> but I am sort of moved by the ending. That ending is fantastic. At the end when there's this kind of like what could have been, you know, there's a couple passages in um, Calvino's Invisible Cities. Oh, yes. You know, yeah. that are like talking about like times that weren't and all meeting all the people you never become in the places where you'll never be and just this like sense of quantum possibilities that don't get realized and I think as cosmological as that sounds in the Calvino it's really mundane like you know you can think about every person you've ever been in a relationship with and how it would have gone if you had stuck with it well and just always that we're ourselves I mean that's yeah with relationships of like we could have played this out in many different ways, yeah. but we're the same. That's what I think he was trying to get out the clever cut ending of Eternal Sunshine. It was, hey, you could put these two people together forever. They're going to do the same pattern every time. Yeah. The difference in how he ends it in, in the actual version that they made is like, yeah, no, they get that that's going to happen and they still choose to do it. That's okay. Yes. Like it's worth it. <laughs> no, 100%. It's all crazy. It's going to break your heart. It's going to make you miserable. It's also 100% worth it. I mean, that's the Philadelphia story. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like, let's agree to make each other miserable for the rest of our lives. <laughs> I should say I do work with with couples uh, for the last you know, 15, 16 years. It's, it's always just fascinating to, to sign the movies like this because it really messes with some of the emotional stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a good relationship movie I could watch forever because it's very realistic about every aspect of the relationship and ends with it's still worth it. Mm-hmm. Chad, it's so awesome to hear these specific moments that have made up your cinephilia all these years. Oh, Veronica, yeah, you too. What a, what a wonderful hour to just get to know both you and, and the movies you love better yeah. and then get to know even better through the movies you love and the moments you love. It was great. And to hear from Eli on the pod. And to hear from Eli. Yay. <laughs> Yeah, it's it was uh, it's just really fascinating. I think to look at movies this way, and I'm really really glad we got a chance to do it. We'll get back to normal movie focused shows going forward, but every once in a while we'll drop one of these uh, kind of different episodes in on you just to keep things fresh. But I really enjoyed it today. Me too. Yeah. Thank you, Veronica. Good hang. Good hang. Yeah. <laughs> Hope it helps yeah. everyone get to know us a little bit better. Last call. How do we last call each other? Um. Let, yeah. Two last calls. Two parting glasses for the podcast episode. <laughs> Listeners of the pod will know that at the end, we usually ask our guests for something they watched recently and then a quick staff recommendation to go back to Scarecrow video (laughs) of something we might put out there for people to consume. So, Chad, what's something you watched recently and something that you would recommend to our listeners? Well, I watched last night. I'm so glad so because it makes me look like I'm really engaged with cinema culture. Um, But it's fascinating. After Yang, the the Coconata film, which was, I mean, talk about a moment that... I've probably watched the intro or the opening, I don't want to spoil anything, but dance intro credit sequence 25 times in the last week. Mm. Totally, if if you're familiar with Columbus at all, I was expecting a very austere kind of quiet opening, and it's not that at all. Mm. And it is just an amazing scene. And the the film itself was beautiful. I really loved it. I'm going to need to watch it another time. I think I still probably would go with Columbus in a pinch, his first film, but I I really just, there was so much I liked about After Yang, and I think the old YouTube channel by Tony Zhou and Taylor Ramos uh, every frame of painting mm. that really applied here. Like every frame was just beautiful. Mm. It was just a, a really great sensory experience, visual experience, the way he used music um, and and the sci-fi aspect of it, which was not a turn I saw coming from him. Mm. So that was a, a movie I really, really enjoyed and was the most recently watched film. I want to quickly shout out John Rim. Cool. John Rim worked on Columbus with Coconata. Wow. That's awesome. What did he do on the film? Well, I can't remember how he's credited exactly, but he worked on research and story and script. 
worked with Coconut as an undergraduate. That's cool. What's your staff recommendation? You know, I overthought that some too, and then I just pared it down to make it simple. It's actually something that Veronica wrote about a couple of years ago, because I think it's the one assignment I've ever given you. I said, you got to write about this one. Oh. <laughs> uh, it's Elaine May's A New Leaf. I do have these pet movies I'm always plugging, and, and I think Hitting a New Leaf. I also throw out really quick, Sydney LeVay's Running on Empty. So now I've mentioned all the ones that I mentioned at video stores to people 20 years ago mm. that I'm still mentioning to people on podcasts now. I think A New Leaf is just fascinating, but also funny and acidic and interesting and just so much worth watching. And Veronica wrote a great piece about it, too. Oh, thanks. Yeah, what did you see last? Well, the last thing I saw recently is uh, Zoe Kravitz double feature. I watched The Batman and also <laughs> Kimmy, the Soderbergh film. Oh, I saw Kimmy. Kimmy was great. I thought it was great, too. Yeah. Okay, good. I, good. I, I loved it. Good genre filmmaking. Yeah, yeah, like a quick, expedient little movie that was like funny and fun to watch. And I just think Zoe Kravitz is great. I'm really sad High Fidelity got canceled. Yeah, I never saw that. I... It's great. Yeah, I want to watch it. It's great. She's great. She's great in the Batman. Brings a kind of like wry realism to the role that feels almost out of place in <laughs> the kind of like noir landscape of the Batman. She has a kind of like naturalism, I think, in her performances. Yeah, that's a great word for her. It feels a little out of step in the Batman, but it's great. I was grateful for it. <laughs> I'll say that the context in which I saw it was the other night I had dinner with a colleague and then afterward went and did some work at a bar and then went to see the Batman, maybe a little bit baracha, as they say, <laughs> and just completely fell asleep like three times in like the third row of a really big cinema. And it was so relaxing. I just I've really come to like love sleeping in the movies. <laughs> I was going to say loyal <laughs> listeners will know you made the case that is not necessarily a bad thing to sleep during movies. Yeah. Yeah. Love sleeping in the movies. I think like that might be our hottest take ever. Like sleeping through movies is okay. I know. <laughs> it's a well-documented practice. I mean, I feel like Lena Gorfinkel has written about it. Oh, I do it all the time, but I do it on accident. Yeah, <laughs> I don't. Well, I think it's always a little bit on accident, but sleeping in the movies, big proponent. Cinematic slumber. Honestly, future issue theme. <laughs> <Yeah>. Sleep. <laughs> Movies to sleep through and then wake yeah. up and not be quite totally lost. In. For sure. I imagine you could still follow the events of the Batman even while missing significant chunks. Oh, yeah. I felt okay. very grounded in the plot <laughs> okay. of okay. the Batman. Um, and then my stack recommendation is a film I recently saw called Compartment Number no. 6, which is directed by Yuho Kusmanin. Ooh. It's a 2021 film. It's about a Finnish student who is studying in Russia and decides to go look at these cave illustrations and takes a trip and meets a miner in the train. Miner, like, works in the mines? Or works, like in the mines. works in the mines. Okay. <laughs> works in the mines. Works in the miner. Yeah, works in the okay. mines. It's not liquor speeds or anything. Okay. No, 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 no. No age gap discourse <laughs> in compartment number six. And it's an incredibly romantic movie. It, mm. it has, like, all the elements of Before Sunrise, of strangers meeting in transit together. Ooh, speaking my language. The actor who plays the minor, the minor, he is <laughs> just, like, has a movie star face. He reminds me of, like, when I first saw Anders Danielson Lee in Reprise mm. and was like, wow, what a face, you know? Like, yeah. he just has a great, expressive, handsome, rugged face. And there's great chemistry. It's an extremely funny and, and very simple movie that really emphasizes the way that even like the initial stages of falling in love just condition the world's possibility and, and how much you feel like can happen. I love that. Yeah, it's incredibly beautiful. And Do you have any idea where someone like me might be able to watch that? Uh, no, I saw it in theater. I saw it in a theater. I saw it in a theater okay. and I'm not sure what the sort of exhibition rollout is going to be. 
hopefully it'll come to a movie or something. I will keep my eye on it. That sounds very good. Yeah. That sounds like a movie movie. Yeah, for a sure. Movie, movie. It's a movie. A movie yeah. movie. It sounds like a movie. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think that's a wrap. All right. To read this month's issue on moments, you can visit us at brightwalldarkroom.com or sign up for our newsletter. You can also find us on Twitter at BWDR. Uh, and if you haven't already, I know we say this every episode and every podcast says this, but it is so super important. Um, please be sure if you like anything that we're doing here that we're trying to build, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast, share the show with a friend, tell someone you love about it, and consider leaving us a positive rating review, which is the most important thing of all that helps podcasts show up in the Apple and everything else. It takes 30 seconds. It helps us out a lot. If you could do that, we'd love you. We love you anyway, though. We just want to reach more movie lovers. That's, that's our whole goal. We're just trying to connect with people. We're trying to connect with your wallets also. <laughs> we really want to connect with your money. So if you could support us at patreon.com slash brightwalldarkroom. If you do that, then we will make whatever podcast episodes you want. We're going to do some Patreon only ones in 2022. So, but we need to see that there's an audience there before. Well, we, do we also need to see that there's funding to pay our fabulous and now vocalized everyone producer and editor Eli Sands. <laughs> Yoo-hoo. <laughs> And also, I think it's, I mean, the audience is great. Uh, we're really happy with how the audience has been growing over the last 10 months. Yeah. So thank you, everybody, on this 10th episode mm-hmm. for the, the last year. And for, um, obviously, you guys are actually telling people about it. Uh, and, and a lot more people are listening each time around each month. That's, of course, what you want to see as a podcast that makes us feel um, really just kind of charged up and engaged to keep going at this. So help us spread the word and also give us some money if you can or if you are a, someone who wants to advertise and get in touch. Our theme music is composed by Chad Perman. This podcast is produced and edited by Eli Sands. Bye. Bye. No. (laughs) (laughs) No, that didn't work. (laughs) Okay, ready? One, two, three. Bye. I'm so tired of my voice, Veronica. I I feel (laughs) about myself the same way, honestly. Shut up. (laughs) Yeah, God, every month you just talk. Oh, my God, that's awful. (laughs)